Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this episode of Be Well with Dr. Stockwell. I'm Diana Klein, your host for this evening. We have the privilege of having Dr. Liz Lister on with us tonight. She is simply amazing. She's an OBGYN by trade. However, in this stage of her career, she has pivoted away from that practice, and she is now a specialist helping men and women with hormonal changes throughout life. She is also a chronic fatigue specialist and has a plethora of information to share with us about chronic fatigue, which I don't know about you guys, but I know me, I am always in some state of fatigue. So without further ado, let's tune in and listen to Dr. Liz Lister. Hi, Dr. Lister. Good evening. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy, very busy schedule to speak with us here on Be Well with Dr. Stockwell. How are you tonight with all this going on in our world? I'm doing great. Thank you. Excellent. Never a dull moment. That's for sure. Oh, for sure. For sure. And you're joining us from the Bay Area. Is that correct? Yes. Excellent. Excellent. San Francisco, beautiful San Francisco Bay Area. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, your area of expertise is extremely fascinating. And I know a lot of our listeners are in that perimenopausal phase of life, um, as well as many either encroaching upon menopause or are already in menopause. And I know that menopause in and of itself is something that we just really don't talk a whole lot about. And then adding in another big vocabulary word for we lay people is the perimenopause phase. And I know you have done extensive research and spent a very large part of your career um, in that space and and treating patients in that in that um, chapter of life. Um, can you just kind of tell our listeners kind of just basic definitions of perimenopause, menopause, and then I'm very curious as well about andropause, which is the uh, our other the men in our life, what they go through as well, and some of the parallels that they go through compared to, to what we go through. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's un- that's interesting, a little bit different. The way I like to break it down to make it easy is menopause is once a woman completely stops having her period. That kind of that's sort of clear, easy to understand. So for women who go through surgery, have their uterus removed, then it's surgical menopause and they're done with periods or more typically is women going into it more naturally, average age of 51 in the US at least. And then they're done. Okay. So that's menopause. Gotcha. I use that interchangeably with postmenopause. That's the same. Then there's premenopause. And premenopause is when everything's just marching along pretty hunky dory, regular menstrual periods, the cycle's pretty normal, woman's feeling pretty good in general, the cycle's not misbehaving. All right. So that's what I call premenopause and then there's this time in between which is perimenopause peri as in perimeter like around menopause and it can last a long time that's the remarkable part is that it we can be looking at 10 or more years from when things were marching along super normal until the periods completely stop can be this long stretch where all kinds of fun things can happen Mm. Interesting. Okay. So premenopause would be or pretty much someone like me, age 38, cycle is normal, month to month, no issues, things clicking along just fine. That's what I would call premenopause. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. 
now this perimenopause. So how would, that's fascinating to me. How would someone like myself know that I am approaching that phase? The first hormone that tends to decline, and this is really common for women in their 30s, is progesterone. Progesterone helps us feel calm. It helps us sleep. So a lot of women start to have some sleep disruption, some mood changes. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors who don't understand the hormonal changes that are happening will do what I call, they'll give what I call Band-Aid medications, like sleeping pills or antidepressants, mm. okay? But really what's happening is progesterone is starting to go down. So that, so sleep disturbances, mood changes, shorter fuse, a lot of women describe it like that. And then estrogen can start to fluctuate. It can go down in some women, which affects mood. It can go up, which can give estrogen dominant symptoms like breast tenderness, headaches, all, all kinds of fun things can happen. And of course, disrupting the menstrual cycle in any way, heavier, lighter, further apart, closer together, all kinds of, of different changes. Those are the most common ones, weight gain, fatigue. It's like this package deal that can happen at that point. Well, I have two sons under the age of three, and I thought I was blaming most of like the sleep disruption and the mood changes and the shorter fuse. I was kind of blaming it on them. Sure, I would. <laughs> I would blame, oh I would put the blame on that. No, I'm kidding. I mean, it could be, it could be. And that's very common. I, I see women of all ages with little kids and also a lot of women. Let's see, you're going to be one of my women who is right around age 15 teenagers. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. I was a later in life mom. Yep. I am going to have teenagers in my 50s. Yes. It's common. <laughs> super common now. It is. It is. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Well, that's really fascinating. So perimenopause, and, and you talked about, uh, you mentioned an increase in estrogen um, and creating the, the tenderness in breasts and so forth. That's what can, aside from age, probably is, is maybe going to be your answer, but is there anything in our environment that can exacerbate that, that oh, causes yeah. this earlier? Oh yeah, absolutely. I am seeing this, these changes happen earlier and earlier in women. We have all kinds of what we call endocrine disruptors in our lives now. Foods that we eat, uh, pollution, um, just medications that we're put on, topical creams, lotions, makeup full of all types of um, ingredients that are not necessarily the best for us. So that's what we call endocrine disruptors. And that's exactly what it sounds like, where it's just throwing off the hormone balance system. Wow. Wow. You know, it's, it, gosh, it's interesting. I see, and perhaps this is a little bit of my mother and me, and maybe I'm just getting, becoming my, my mother, but she used to look around at young girls with the short shorts and everything and just scoff. And now I look around and I see so many young girls in their teenage years and early twenties that are, I, I, I'm thinking are overdeveloped and like developing at a, at a right. much higher rate. Is that, is do you think that that's just me anecdotally looking at it? Do you think that perhaps these endocrine disruptors are causing that as well? Yes. Yes. No, that the data shows that girls are having their period at a younger age. Their in, increasing body fat can trigger puberty. And the food that we eat is just not as good a quality. The quality is declining. Our diets are not doing so well. 
and uh, all of that, if it's leading to earlier weight gain and fat gain in particular, it can trigger the puberty to the onset of puberty to happen a little bit earlier. And we know that women don't grow as tall and uh, get their menstruation at a younger age. We're definitely seeing that. Wow. Wow. What do you see are the implications for these young girls as they become women throughout life with an earlier onset menstruation, menstrual cycle and going forward in life? How how does that change? Would that lead potentially to earlier menopause, later menopause? You know, there isn't a good association between those. People observe, kind of make different observations, but there really isn't a very consistent pattern that we see. One suggestion is that if a woman, if a girl goes through, goes into puberty younger, that she's going to go into menopause later. But that's really more anecdotal. That's not very consistent. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And from a health standpoint, it depends on the choices that she makes all through her life. True. True. Definitely. Definitely. So, hmm. Yeah. It's like, how do you prevent that with our food and with everything? Our complete environments around us are just seem to be very much against us and against this, this cause of trying to keep us healthy. Um, What would you recommend to young girls in high school that are approaching this as, as much as they will listen? I know I didn't listen very well in high school, but but if, if you could tailor some information or tailor a soundbite, if you will, to, to try to penetrate the minds of those young girls as far as what they can do it, it, for their health at that phase of life to prevent these issues that we're all seeing as, we're, as we are older, what would you tell them? I would tell them that the, the healthier that they can stay, the better choices they can make on a daily basis, that it adds up over the long run. If you don't put on your seatbelt on one quick trip to the store, most likely nothing bad will happen. But if you do that over a lot of years of your life, then chances are that, yes, something bad will eventually at some point happen. Right. And that's really what it's all about with making good choices on a daily basis and I always, and I would say to young women, women, young women of all ages is to do, do everything that you can so that you feel your best. So then you can then turn back around and do your best in your life and for other people. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. That's extremely good advice. Extremely <laughs> good advice. Gosh. Um, one thing I noticed um, in your bio and your very extensive amount of research is you've you've done a lot of study with fatigue. And in my my other job is I'm a pilot. And so fatigue is is a big deal to us. And we have specialized work rules and, and not just work rules, but regulations, federal regulations that govern our sleep cycles or how much sleep we're supposed to have in a given period. Um, and that's on the, the aviation operational side. But for your side, from all your research, you've done a ton of research on chronic fatigue. And we already talked about perimenopause and being tired and all of those things and how I'm equating it to being a mother of two toddlers. Um, <laughs> what would you, I mean, it seems like we are all pre-COVID-19, we were all just tired. And now COVID-19, we're tired in a different way, depending on you know, our walks of life, you know, what what is making us tired, what worries are on our hearts and so forth. But overall, we are all a very tired society. Um, that chronic fatigue, 
what would you, can you tell us a little bit about your research first? And then I'm going to ask you what advice you would have to give to all of us to avoid it. But I'm really curious. I think our listeners would be too, to hear about your research with chronic fatigue. Oh my goodness. And this is like a huge, huge, huge topic. Yes. I, I tell you what, I'm, I'm really interested to know how do they have in the pilot world, how do, how many hours of sleep do they tell you that we are first- makes you safe? We're supposed to have eight hours of sleep behind the door. So as soon as we get into our hotel and we close that door, we are supposed to have eight solid hours from the moment that we close that door. And if we don't, then we will actually delay flights the next day in order to make sure the crew is well rested. And then my specialty is long haul flying. And so we work in wackles, windows of circadian lows, and we tailor our crew rest based on, on that cycle. And oftentimes we will fly to a destination and instead of just staying for roughly 24 hours, we'll stay for 50 hours so that we become what they call acclimated. And then we wind up coming back and having to reacclimate. So it's, it's very much based on our (laughs) circadian cycles. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Well, research for sleep shows all sorts of different basic sleep needs. There are only about 3% of us who can get along with fewer than, let's say, five hours of sleep a night. So when you hear about famous people who don't need to sleep a lot, that exists. However, I'm in the 97% of people who do not have that genetic gift. And uh, most studies agree that seven hours is a really rock bottom minimum. So I'm happy to hear that people who are piloting our aircraft are required to hopefully be getting a little bit more than that. So in terms of quantity, we want to get minimum seven hours of sleep. And of course, most uh, many people need more than that. Okay. Right. Now, as far as what people describe as chronic, for example, chronic fatigue syndrome has a lot more, it has the sleep disruption, it has the feeling of a profound fatigue, and patients actually distinguish it from once, once we get them feeling better, they distinguish that feeling from what they call, quote unquote, normal tired. Hmm. Okay, so there's normal tired. There's your, you know, your little ones kept you up. You know that you're working long hours. You know, you know reasons for being tired. And then if you're hopefully able to get away on a trip somewhere and you can really rest up and then you don't have this ongoing feeling of severe fatigue. So there is a difference. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And people with chronic fatigue syndrome have other... Uh, disturbances in their bodies. They have muscle pain. They have, uh, which can affect all kinds of systems in the body, by the way, Um, as well as cognitive issues. Okay, so it's kind of got this own set of symptoms going together. And it's distinct from, like I said, from what people and myself refer to kind of like normal tired. Gotcha. Gotcha. So if someone were to come to you and and correct me if I'm wrong, I know you're an OBGYN by trade, but you've done a ton of work in this, in this area. Do you have a separate practice that um, helps people with chronic fatigue? Do you, for example, would you have a chronic fatigue practice and then your, your OBGYN practice separate? 
Yeah, now it's all together and I am not delivering babies anymore. I gave that up a few years ago, even though it was fun. And yeah. I'm actually not doing the gynecology itself now. My okay. practice is completely a consultative practice. And I do my very favorite part of what I always did as a doctor over the last 30 years, which is I spend most of my time talking with women. Awesome. Awesome. It's my it's my favorite part in medical school. It's what drew me to OBGYN. And uh, so I enjoyed all that time that I was in the operating room and doing surgeries and delivering babies and C-sections and backing up midwives and doing all sorts of fun things. However, over time, I, I would say over the past mm, 13 years or so kind of narrowed down my practice. And now it's entirely focused on hormone balance menopause, perimenopause, low thyroid, fatigue, energy, weight gain. Those are my favorite topics. And I get to spend most of my time talking sometimes with men, a lot of fun to talk to the men. They're usually easier to get them feeling better. We I women bet. are more complicated. Uh, but most of my time talking with women, which is my favorite part. Yes, absolutely. And you know what? Shame on me. That was one of my first questions that I wanted to ask you um, during our podcast is what got you into women's health? Like why why women's health? And uh, when you were in medical school, what was, you know, I, I it's my understanding you guys go through all types. You see everything and you're all general mm -hmm. practitioners and then you all specialize, typically specialize in one way or another. What um, What drew you to women's health? First of all, both my parents were doctors. Oh, wow. Okay. I was around medicine and the medical world my whole life, and I always enjoyed it. I would go visit my parents at the hospital. My mom's a pediatrician. My dad's a neurologist. They're both mostly retired, but they're still active in their communities. My mom still works part-time, and, oh. and now she's learning how to do Zoom uh, online consult telehealth conferences. Oh, gosh, I bet. I know. She's multi-talented. Okay, so I was always around that. I always enjoyed it, liked going to the hospital, liked the environment, did summer jobs in the hospitals, that type of thing. Then I got to medical school, and you get to go on rotations, and you get to shadow the resident doctors. I'll never forget one day I was there as a student, and I was following the senior resident as she was going in to see a patient in the clinic. And this patient was having hot flashes and sweats. She was having menopause-related symptoms. And I just sat in the corner and observed like a little fly on the wall. And uh, what I observed was this doctor talking with the patient. And just in the process of their conversation, the patient was just feeling so relieved that this was normal and that they, she could do something to help her feel better. And, uh, and, and just in the course of their conversation, the patient was feeling better and uh, was really happy. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, that's really cool. That is really cool. And just like, just like you said, now with your consulting business, that's what you're doing. You're talking, mm -hmm. talking, women and making, getting them so much healthier. That's wonderful. Um, we mentioned earlier before I backtracked and, and asked you about how you got into medicine. Um, you mentioned that you also talked to the men as well. And, uh, and I'm presuming you consult and talk to them about their hormone balances and imbalances and uh, this new term that I am not that familiar with called andropause. Can you tell us about that? Because menopause, we hear that buzzword often and, uh, you know, sometimes in a not so great light, but very rarely do we hear about andropause. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. 
the word andropause is interesting. I think it's great that there is a word. It's not exactly the right word because with menopause, meno refers to the menstrual cycle. And of course, as people comment on the internet and make jokes about the fact, I don't know why they call it a pause because it's really a full stop. Okay, right. So for women, we go through this very big up and down year or two transition. The hormone levels are going up, down, up, down. I call it the stock market phase because that's what the graph looks like, the levels like wildly going up and down as a woman. And then she goes into menopause and everything is low. For men, it's a much more gradual process. Okay, so you've got a young man, his young men, young women, we're teenagers, we're around age 20, our levels are at their very highest. Okay, and then we go through our 20s and then for men around starting around age 30 their testosterone levels go down 1 to 2% every year wow i know i would have never guessed interesting exactly and they don't guess it either so they're going so just picture a, a more gradually declining curve and when you take it all the way out to a man who's in his 70s 80s or older the the stereotype of the crabby old man, the grumpy old man. <laughs> yes. That's not because, you know, people think testosterone makes you angry. It doesn't. It actually calms you down. And so the grumpy old man is actually lacking testosterone. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. interesting. And that's when men get sick, when they get older, right? Women as well. When we have lower hormone levels in our bodies, that's when things get difficult and uh, we start to experience more illnesses. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I learned something new. I would have never guessed mm -hmm. that. The, the 1% to 2% and then the grumpy old man makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the story of the boiling frog? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Right. So it's not a very pretty story, but as you know, the, the boiling frog, the frog, if you toss it into boiling water, it jumps right out. Right. 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 But if it's just in the room temperature water and you heat it slowly, it doesn't realize it till it's too late. And it's more like that for men. All of okay. a sudden they're tired. They're not motivated. They might be gaining weight. They might be losing muscle mass. And, and that's the constellation of symptoms that's referred to as andropause. Interesting. Interesting. Well, and of course that uh, I, I, I'm envisioning like a graph in my mind and one line on the graph is we women, you know, everything is starting to kind of taper off down towards perimenopause and then menopause. And then the gentlemen in our life have the decreasing testosterone that, and then the confluence of that is not a good thing. Right. So <laughs> that, that could create some, some angst, if you will. Uh, now it makes sense. Uh, interesting. So when, when, if, if I, let's go back to, to women here for just a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, if a woman comes to you who is, has all of these negative symptoms and they say, Dr. Lister, what, you know, help me please. You know, and let's say that they're in the perimenopause phase. So um, the sleep deprivation, the mood changes, the shorter fuse, the weight gain, or, or some of the things increase in estrogen causing breast tenderness and so forth. I'm sure I know it varies from patient to patient, but typically what are your go-to things? What, what's going through your mind as far as how can you help a woman who comes to you with those things? Is it through supplementation? Is it through estrogen, um, synthetic estrogen supplements? Like what, what do you typically 
prescribe to these women or recommend? Yeah. Yeah. That's an awesome question. What I do, what my process starts with is a really thorough evaluation. That's step number one. So not just looking at just a couple of blood tests that her doctor may or may not run for her. A lot of times if a woman tells her doctor she's still having her period, they'll say, oh, well, this is not related to hormones or menopause. So I'm not going to check you. That happens a lot. So the first step is a really thorough workup, thyroid, adrenals, the sex hormones, vitamin levels, regular labs, cholesterol, looking at the whole picture. And then in terms of getting her feeling better, depending on what the results show, it's going to include, it's going to include natural supplements. There's almost always that's going to be part of the program. And also the natural or uh, I like the word bioidentical forms of the hormones. Okay. Okay. So replenishing back into the body, what we used to have enough of back when we were feeling fantastic. Okay. So I don't subscribe to the theory that we have to have hormone levels of a 20 year old. As I like to say, there's a reason we don't want 20 year olds running things. <laughs> right. Yes. Okay. However, <laughs> maybe, maybe like your age, your age maybe is like right. Really great. You know, you're feeling good. You're keeping up with your littles. You're working like you kind of got this whole wonderful groove going. And that's, uh, that's a nice place to stay. That's a nice place to be hormonally. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So is it typically, especially when it comes to hormones, and I've had a few guests on the podcast previously that talked about um, a little bit about the bioidentical versus the synthetic estrogen. Um, but before we delve into that, another question just came up in my mind. With the bioidentical at estrogen, it, is it typically something that a woman, let's say I come to you at 38 years old and you diagnose me as perimenopausal, um, and to combat my symptoms, you prescribe bioidentical estrogen. Is it a regimen of three months, six months, a year, or is it something that I would have to take throughout the rest of my life? But then how does that, if that's the case, then how does that impact menopause? Excellent question. It's actually one of the first questions that I get before women look at me, they're like, okay, wait, I really want to do things to feel better. But first tell me how long will I be having to take this? Right. Yes. Well, that's a very common question. All right. So I have a, a, a kind of a range of answers there. One is that, first of all, I encourage women not to be in a rush to get off of hormones. I like to have them, number one, feel better and then get to feeling great and then stay there a while. Okay, depending on her age, when we start, I'm saying at least a few years. Okay, hormones are good for the bones, they're good for the brain. They're just so, there are so many benefits that I'm aware of doctors who have the patient sign a consent form if they don't want hormones. Oh, wow. Because there's so many adverse health changes that happen when once our hormone levels go down. Okay, so. The other part of my answer is that the amount of hormones that it takes to protect the brain and the heart and the bones in particular is much less than what it takes to clear up hot flashes and night sweats. Huh. So the amount of hormone replenishment that a younger woman might need who's suffering and not sleeping well and doesn't want to have sex with her partner and is being mean to her kids and, <laughs> you know, important situations to, to improve and clear up, 
the amount of hormone replenishing that that requires is more than what she'll need in the long run. Okay. Gotcha. So it's one of those situations where obviously coming back in and checkups with you on a rather routine basis to reevaluate and make sure things are still going as they should. Okay. Exactly. And the, and the visits get further apart. I I don't like to go more than six months without check-ins with my patients. And uh, because I, you know, all the, all my years of doing gynecology, I would see women once a year and we would set goals and I'd see them a year later and it just was, there wasn't even a check-in during the year, you know, just to, just to be sure that things were on track. So every six months is what I call cruise control mode. Once a woman is doing well, feeling good. And then in between, if we need to make adjustments, we do. Uh, But so at first it's a little more intensive, like the first year there's a few more appointments in that year. But then later on the visits, we go into more of a, a monitoring mode. Gotcha. Gotcha. And kind of back to the original, my, my original question that popped into my brain, um, the bioidentical form versus synthetic. Yeah. Um, yes. We laypersons, we, we hear, we hear estrogen supplementation equated with some negative, you, you talked about all the positive things. And I've learned so much through doing this podcast and speaking to experts such as yourself, that it is absolutely a positive for a woman's life. But yet, oftentimes in the media or on social media, or Dr. Google says that synthetic estrogen <laughs> or estrogen in general, supplementation can cause awful things such as an increased risk of breast cancer and some other things. Um, yeah. Do you mind t- talking a little bit about that specifically? And I, I, I hear it regarding synthetic estrogen. So am I completely off base or? You not? are not off base whatsoever. As I like to say, and as I heard said, bad news makes better news than good news. Yes. So yes. that bad news has just hung around since 2002, since the Women's Health Initiative study. And that's where that whole idea came from, where they used estrogen by mouth. We're going to come right back to that. And not bioidentical. And they used a synthetic or let's say non-bioidentical progestin. Okay, and we know now that that's the source of the increased risk of breast cancer is the synthetic progestin, not the estrogen. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, we okay. just know that for sure. There's multiple large studies, including the original that Women's Health Initiative study, because they only stopped the arm of the study where women were taking the estrogen, or the horse estrogen and the non-bioidentical progestin. They stopped that arm, but there were there was a whole nother arm of thousands of women of the study who were continued to be given the estrogen. Again, not, not the one I like. This is a horse oral estrogen. Oh. They were given, and then another group in that arm given placebo. The women on the estrogen had a lower risk of breast cancer. Wow. I know. But they had other issues because it was oral estrogen. So we want estrogen through the skin. Okay. And we want the progesterone to be bioidentical. So progesterone can be by mouth, but it has to be bioidentical in order to avoid the increased risk of breast cancer and other issues that they that they found. Interesting. Okay. This Mm -hmm. is is the first I've heard of the estrogen by mouth versus estrogen um, in the skin. Very important. 
and horse estrogen that's what it was yes it was called premarin which was short for pregnant mare's urine oh lo- oh, oh i know just not a good drug on so many levels now i will say that it helped a lot of women feel better but we now know that oral estrogen does what we call the first pass effect through the liver you, you swallow it goes in your stomach and then it absorbs and goes over to the liver and stimulates the production of clotting factors and so these women in this study with oral estrogen had increased risk of strokes, heart attacks, other outcomes that none of us want, which no. we also we now know that those risks are not elevated when the estrogen is through the skin. Cream patch, vaginal application, hormone pellet therapy, anything other than by mouth. Interesting. Okay. So it essentially bypasses a major digestive system and has a completely different result. That's fascinating. Exactly. It, it really is. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors still aren't up to speed with all that information. So I always say to women that they have to be the tail that wags the dog to yes. advocate for themselves. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Well, I know our listeners will definitely want to hear about that. And oh my goodness, Premarin standing for what it stands for with pregnant mares urine, estrogen. Yeah. Oh, Ew. Wow. Right? I know. Wow. Is that even still on the market? It's, it is. What? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Sure. It's the cheapest one now. Oh, geez. It's been well, around for so long. I know. Huh. <sighs> wow. Big red flag. Big red flag. Premarin. Yeah. No. Yeah. Premarin yeah. equals no. Okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the pra- the patches, the gels, they're bioidentical. They are, they count. They, they are bioidentical. They are great. They help women feel better. And they don't cause all those other issues that we saw in those studies. Interesting. Interesting. Well, thank goodness there's an alternative. It sounds like several different alternatives that are healthy yeah. and safe. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Oh, yeah. Well, we're almost out of time. And before we go, um, I have two big things. The first thing, um, I noticed you're an author. And I also, um, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about your online community, which I mean, in this day and age of COVID-19 quarantine, and what I foresee in the future is being more, a, a lot more online based um, access of, of things to people. Um, you are starting an online community. Can you tell us a little bit about your online community? Absolutely. It's growing and I'm about to do surveys and kind of ask people, I have ideas of what I want to name the baby, what I want to name it. Uh, but that'll be kind of a group activity. And basically it's people who want to feel great at every age, people who, as I like to say, reject the J word, as in just, you're just getting older, you just have to accept feeling more tired, or less sex drive with your relationship. That's just not true. Oh, I love it. I love it. And the just is another four letter word too. There you go. There you go. Awful J, four letter J word. Yeah, so my first book is really about perimenopause, even though it's called Dr. Liz's Easy Guide to Menopause. It's really aimed at women in their 40s and 50s who are still having ups and downs and want to get that dialed in. And my book that came out last year and went bestseller is called Go For Great, Dr. Liz's Guide to Thrive at Every Age. 
awesome awesome those are definitely going on my reading list are you are are you selling via amazon or audible yes Yes, they are on amazon they are on signed copies are on my website i created a video course that goes along with the dr liz's easy guide to menopause and i love that class it's just a wonderful seven short sessions adds up to about an hour of videos and that's currently for free for people joining my online community on my website awesome awesome and what's your website drlizmd.com d-r-l-i-z-m-d.com md.com awesome awesome drlizmd.com excellent and as far as social media facebook instagram twitter all of those do you have a handle that we can that we can find you at as well absolutely all of that is on my website most of them are dr liz lister dr l-i-z-l-y-s-t-e-r that's always an easy way to find me perfect the links are the links are definitely on my site awesome i want everybody to connect i love being connected i love growing that i put out content every day to keep people up to date and links to all the information that's out there yeah Excellent. Excellent. So just to make sure I've got it recapped, it's Dr. Liz's easy guide to menopause, which is not just menopause, but covers perimenopause and all of we ladies that are approaching that stage of life. And then your other book, Go for Great, which sounds amazing. Both sound amazing. Um, Available on Amazon, on Audible, and also via your website, drlizmd.com, D-R-L-I-Z-M-D.com. Awesome. Yeah. Well, one last question before we go. This, first of all, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Lister. This has really been very eye-opening. Um, lots of interesting things I've learned tonight uh, that are just kind of a little shocking and stunning in a good way. Um, the whole Primarin and talking about um, the men's health aspect of this too has been really fascinating. Um, but one last closing thought. What advice would you give to your closest female friend or a daughter or a close female relative and ors to all of those or all of the above, what would you tell them is the one big thing that you have seen in your practice through all your years of medicine that you can do to help be the best that you can be at any stage of life? I would say to be proactive. Go ahead, get, get ahead of the game. Don't tolerate not feeling your best. There are safe ways to balance hormones, replenish hormones. Don't be afraid. Go for it. Do not hang around not sleeping well and not feeling good because you think that there's health risks with the hormone replenishment because there aren't. There's actually a vast list of health benefits. So I, that's what I encourage. That's what I would encourage her to do is uh, that and take vitamin D. Vitamin D is our friend. And also to, to go for it, to not be afraid of replenishing hormones and really go for feeling great at every age. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lister. Again, really appreciate it. And uh, please, please stay healthy and stay safe up there in the Bay Area. And I cannot wait to hear about your online community. I'm definitely going to like and follow all of your social media and um, get tuned into your website. And I can't wait to see what you name the baby of your online community. Awesome. Thank you. 
All right. Have a great night. Thank you again.